This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. And uh, John Syracuse, my co-host, is quite adept and skillful at uh, criticizing really any of these things. We're very good at it. And uh, I like to help out once in a while. I'm Dan Benjamin. This show is brought to you this week by Rackspace.com and Shopify.com, which we'll tell you about as the show goes on. Hi, John. Syracuse, how are you? Doing just fine, Dan. Now, we are recording this show a little bit uh, earlier than usual in the week. And people, we may hold it back a little. We may not make everyone wait till Friday. Uh, but I'm, I'm moving this week to Austin. This is the big week. So uh, I couldn't, can't record on Friday. I'll be in a car driving with uh, my wife and my three-year-old. Not an ideal recording venue. So you it agreed to done. do it today. You agreed to do it today, and you said, "Well, Dan, I'm not sure what we're going to all talk about." Yeah, reason. you should leave the impressions to Merlin, I guess. All right. So, what are we going to talk about? Toasters. We got the follow up first. We got to do the follow up. We're still going to talk about PHP and Perl, aren't we? Uh, I'll probably put that to bed today. I don't think there's much more to say about all that, right. but I'll, I'll save that for the end of the follow up. Okay. Uh, and as for main topic, I have a couple of small options. I think this will be a short show, uh, just because I got a skedaddle uh, in. A little over an hour. Short, short in the sense of it will only be like an hour and 20 minutes long. I think it'll be less than that. Okay. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Hey, so, people are lucky to be getting a show at all this week. That's right. That's right. It's our dedication. That's right. Providing a show a week. That's even right. Even when you're moving. Yeah. And you and you willing to do it on a weird day when there's nothing new to talk about. There you go. All right. So uh, got a little bit of TV follow-up. Maybe the, this will be the dregs of the TV follow-up. So well, one thing I forgot to follow up on on the episode right after the TV episode, I missed it because it was just a small item in my notes, a one-liner, and I guess I just scanned over it. Okay. Uh, on the TV episode, I I gave model numbers for televisions that I recommend looking into if you're interested in buying a uh, top-of-the-line plasma. And I also, uh, during that little section, sort of off the cuff said, and I have XYZ model. And I got my own television model number wrong. Your own, is, Your own wrong? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, because I just like I had been reading off these model numbers and I thought, and yeah, and my model number has got to be like a little bit lower down in the range. But no, I had I misread it. So for the people dying to know, the actual model number I have is a Panasonic TCP 50 V10. It's not a V20, like I said on the show. Wow. I know you're all dying to know that, but wow. I, I figured it's worth correcting for the record that no, I do not know the exact model of television I have off the top of my head anymore, which is sad. Well, I, have you noticed that about like uh, your. Your progression, maybe it's just getting older, but it could also be the progression of technology. If I was to ask you 20 years ago uh, what speed the CPU was in your computer, you'd know it instantly. Oh, instantly, yeah. Oh, right? yeah. But nowadays, if I were to ask you what's the CPU speed on the computer you're using right now, you'd be like, oh, let's see. I know it's probably something like, you know, like, do you know? I have no idea. I know it's a yeah. Core i7 in this new one, but I only know that because I just bought it. Yeah, like, I mean, if you had asked me, you know, a decade or two ago, I could tell you, you know, how much L2 cache Things <laughs> right, you know, how probably. Many, how many pipeline stages are, are <laughs> you know? Yeah. So maybe we're just both getting older, but uh, it could be also that certain certain technology is passing beyond the level of interest, especially clock speed, which hasn't gone up in so many well, years. Well, I, 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 we can always go back to the automobile analogy, right? And you would say, how many horsepower does you know does your car have? Your car's engine, how much horsepower does it have? I have no idea. Do yeah. you know? I mean, do you, most people would know how many cylinders their engine has. You'd think I would not. I would not make that assumption. <laughs> you think? Most have no idea that their engine have cylinders. At oh all. come on! Yeah. Not even the geeks. 
that's not most people. See, I think you're a V4. You drive something with a V4 in it. Probably, probably V4, Japanese. V4. I think you're. Uh, yeah, that's. A, and I do not have a V4. No. You're exposing your lack of automotive knowledge with that. What do you have? V8. <laughs> no. We're in, not talking about cars. All in, right. An inline six. Yeah, that would be nice, but no. So, uh, one more thing. This is like uh, catching up on little bits of things that are bad about plasmas. Last week, we uh, we did a follow-up on burn-in. And one more that I forgot to get to was floating blacks on the particular line of Panasonic plasmas that I was recommending. Is that a rotary Uh, engine? No, it's not a wankle. Uh, So, (laughs) floating blacks on plasmas. I, I have some links in the show notes. But what it boils down to is that the plasma TVs, in order to get such great black levels, will uh, adjust the black level based on the overall brightness of the scene. And the demonstration videos show this by like covering, they, they show a letterbox movie, and they cover everything except for the black letterbox stripe on the top. They cover with a sheet so you can't see it. So all you see is what should be just a black bar, right? And you can watch the brightness of that black bar change based on the brightness of the content area. It's because the, the television set is dynamically adjusting the black levels uh, based on the uh, overall brightness. And apparently Panasonic says this is not a bug. This is a feature of their technology that they use to get this, uh, the, the picture so good on their uh, uh, top of the end line of plasma TV. So if anyone is looking into them, I would suggest, in addition to the burn stuff we talked about last time, look at these videos. I have a link, two links to videos and one link to uh, one of the avsforums.com. Have you ever gone to that website? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, those are the crazy video nerds. But anyway, the crazy video nerds have a thread on it, too. So, you know, just so you're sure, you're sure you know what you're in for, uh, I would suggest checking out those videos and deciding if this is something you care about or not. Um, last week, uh, I mentioned resizing your picture so you can see every single pixel on the screen or maybe it was the week before that and i talked about that little white fuzz stuff you see on standard f pictures sometimes right. at the top exactly. or the bottom yeah um and a couple of people wrote in to explain what that was that is apparently vitc v-i-t-c vertical interval time code uh and it's some extra information that they shove into the uh, the audio signal for standard f television uh, it's a bunch of black and white bars, and they put them into the vertical blanking interval between uh, the, the scan uh, lines on the television. And some of saying they also could use it to put in closed captioning information. But at any rate, it's another one of those uh, piggybacking data information on top of another uh, signal. So that's that's it's what like those making notes in the margins. Yeah, more or less. But you know, yeah. so you, usually you never saw those before because the, every television had overscan and they were off the picture. You wouldn't even see them on the tube. But now. Uh, that you have HDTV, but you can also watch standard def on it. You may see them. And like I said, they don't, they don't bother me, and I just don't watch standard def. So um, if you had a choice between something on standard def and not watching anything, what would you pick? I, I have that choice frequently because I only get, for example, BBC American standard def, so I will frequently not watch the standard def episode of Doctor Who that my TiVo recorded and wait and download a high-definition version. Hmm. Is that legal? Uh, I don't know. I don't really care. Let them come and get me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> morally speaking, I pay money to get BBC America, uh, but it doesn't come in HD. I would gladly pay more money to get BB- this in uh, HD, but I can't. Okay. I think you can buy the episodes on iTunes in HD, but then you have to delay. Uh, I don't think they're released the day of. Should I be watching that, Doctor Who, the new one? You seem to like Fringe a lot, and... Doctor Who is probably 
similar quality to Fringe. I am not a crazy Doctor Who fan, and I'm not a crazy Fringe fan, but I don't know. If you're going to do Doctor Who, you'd have to like go back to the beginning of the reboot, which is like six seasons worth of stuff. And there was a reboot? Be, yeah. Well, not a reboot, but like Doctor Who is eternal. It goes on and on and on. Yeah, so but you, I mean, there... there I can't just pick up with the the, current doctor? I can't just get with him and say, okay. You could, but then that would be kind of wrong. So how far back do I have to go? You got to go back five seasons. You got to go back. Why five? Christopher Eccleston. That's the the new era modern Doctor Who where they started the series back up again and they've been running straight since then. Okay, so we'll think about it. So can I... If you like sci-fi, you mean it's... Do they still have Daleks in there? Yes, what do you think? Of course they do. Can you do a Dalek impersonation? I cannot, but in an hour I will when my microphone goes. <laughs> so, uh, SSDs. We talked about that Coding Horror SSD article. Yeah. And about the reliability and stuff like that. I, I tried to downplay it as much as I could in terms of, you know, this is just some guy's blog. I did say that it was a little bit more statistically significant than one person saying, I bought an SSD and then it's dead. Because that's just completely anecdotal. At the very least, this was... One person who had purchased many different drives, you know, so it was it was like uh, eight drives from four different vendors in five different sizes. So does that doesn't make it authoritative by any means, but it's still better than just one guy with one drive. Uh, I I don't think it's you know you can declare anything about the overall reliability of SSDs based on that, but it is a data point uh, that's better than a completely anecdotal. I think. Uh, some people had some quibbles with the, the the tax math, which I read from a comment that was on the post. Someone had you know done the math and figured out that you're paying you know two bucks per day extra to have this SSD, uh, and they said, well, you know, if they come with three three year warranty, so who cares if it dies after on average 227 days or something like that? You'll just get it replaced under warranty. Uh, but the warranty doesn't reset when you get the replacement. Unfortunately, that would be great if it was if it was true because we'd never have to pay for another hard drive again. But when you get the new warranty replacement, you're still in your original three year term term on most hard drives, and I assume most SSDs. So, at the end of those three years, you have an expectation that you know it's going to die pretty quickly after the end of those three years because you know on average these last less than a year, and so I get a warranty replacement three times, but then my warranty runs out, so I'm pretty sure this thing is going to die in less than a year again. Uh, versus a hard drive, which may sail through all three years problem-free and may last four years or five years. So the tax math was probably off slightly, but there still definitely is a tax for doing that. Not to mention like how much is your time worth of you know packing up the thing, going through the RMA process, sending the disk back, trying to clean your data off of it, which is actually not particularly easy. There's articles on the web about how to actually erase your data off of an SSD. Uh, so anyway, I'm still SSD-less, uh, mostly for monetary reasons, but I'm also wary of them from a reliability point of view. I'm willing to wait a couple more generations. So, PHP, I guess. You said so, you're going to put this to bed. Because we're, yeah. ta- you know, we're talking about this for a lot, and this isn't, this isn't a development show. I know, but it's, it's, a, re- it's a technology uh-huh. related to Apple. And other businesses or whatever that. Well, you've reached the you've reached the limit of where I think I think how it's it, it yes it's related to Apple. But I think we've reached a limit uh, as how far you can take it. I think All we right. have to we have to. I mean, and I know we're going to get emailed because people are going to say, "How dare you stop John Syracuse from talking about this amazing topic?" And you know what? Yeah, I mean, it is, and maybe maybe there's not. But let's put it to bed. Let's find something else to, yeah. to talk. So so it's been a lot of episodes. Yeah, Marco replied in his thing. Uh, he got to the heart of the issue, uh, I think, when he was 
basically talking about how we are discussing languages from two different perspectives. And I was very clearly trying to emphasize that I was talking about it from a language design perspective, right? Like say, you know, people who would be interested in this is if you were designing a programming language, what are the things that you would think about that make that programming language good or bad? That was always the perspective that I was coming from. And Marco when it was in a different direction where he was defending PHP from a practical language usage perspective. I tried very hard to separate those, but it's very difficult. It, even if you state your assumptions, the other person's assumptions may override them. So, uh, for example, he, he was describing some of the bad things about PHP that he had experienced. And he said that uh, he mentioned a lack of good profilers and debuggers and that there's no single dominant web framework and all that stuff like that. That I would never ding PHP for because it's not the language's fault that there aren't good profilers and debuggers. It's the implementation's fault, perhaps, or the community's fault or something else. And same thing with no dominant web framework. It's not the language's fault that there's no dominant web framework. The language is just the language. And what people do with it is totally separate. So I was... I was always looking at PHP from a language design perspective, which may be too narrow of a perspective to be important to anybody, except for perhaps people who are interested in programming language design, and that's me. Uh, the one thing I did learn was that he actually uses PHP from the command line. Now, I had mentioned that while it was technically possible, I didn't think anyone was actually doing it. Well, now I know. I have met, officially met the first person I know who runs PHP from the command line. Maybe, maybe it's widespread. I don't know. I, if I had been in the chat during that show, that's what I would have asked. Say, is this something like that? most php programmers do or do you think you're an odd duck for i i think it's a very much i i don't think that it is typical that your average php developer is doing that i have done it uh but i did it under special circumstances where it had to be done and and uh marco it seems is doing it as part of his you know implementation that that he has cron jobs that are running php tasks and things like that and i wouldn't go so far as to say it's really weird but I think I think here's the situation here let me describe to you the situation where I would imagine that happening. For me, if if I was going to run something from cron, there's something that was going to go on to the system, something that was going to for example, you know, purge old records from a database or something. I mean, that sounds like something you would want to do from cron, right? Uh you would do it on a system level maybe. If it was me, I would probably do that in you could guess Ruby, right? I mean, that's something that's everybody's always done from the command line and it works just fine from the command line. And now it's sort of become the underlying technology for a web framework called Ruby on rails. But with PHP, generally people think of it as exclusively something that you would use on the web. It was born for doing things in on, on the web, displaying things in a web page, talking to a database, but it was, it was n never really imagined as, Unlike something like Perl or Ruby or Python, which have all become web frameworks, they were command line stuff first, right? And I think the PHP has come the other way. It's, it was a web framework or a web language, is that the right word to use? First, and yeah, you can do things on the command line, but it seems weird. And the first time I did it, I was like, wow, this is really weird. It's really weird. But I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think your average PHP developer is doing that. But the I, main reason the main reason you want to do that is because you want to have a common set of code, like the code that manipulates the database. You don't want to write two versions of that. Or, or because one. maybe you only know PHP. Yeah, or something like that. And and you know, so I guess if you're doing it from the command line, you know, you're you're I mean, it's the same thing. You're loading other other PHP files to, as a way of loading modules to get the libraries that do the database manipulation, and then you write your thing. It's just a little bit weird out of a uh, database context. Someone in the chat room said they use it too, so that's two people. Two people I've now seen in real life who use it from the command. Maybe it's maybe it's common. I didn't think it was, but uh, 
Uh, that was uh, a point that he brought up that I didn't know about on the show. Yeah. And I think that's all I have to say about the PHP thing. I think we've more or less hashed it out. <laughs> nothing more to uh, to yell about. Because, I, because like he said, I think we agree. If we were to discuss PHP from a language design perspective, we would agree. And it's not like I think the language design perspective dominates anything. Because remember, I started this whole discussion of programming languages by saying that the quality of the language has so little bearing on its popularity and how useful it actually is. But I do like that topic in isolation. I do think it's an interesting topic because if you don't, you know, if, if nobody's thinking about that topic, all languages will be crappy forever. And it won't matter even if they have the best community and the best environment or whatever. Let's make some progress on the language front too. You can't, you know, just because it's not the dominant factor doesn't mean it shouldn't be paid attention to. Uh, so that was the, the origin of this entire conversation way back when. I want to do some follow-up, last follow-up. I want to do it on uh, a different show, a uh, talk show. You were talking this week in, in uh, an early talk show. You were talking about WebOS, I think, at some point, because uh, Gruber was getting the uh, some Palm hardware. Right, he, got a, he, hardware. he just received uh, the Palm uh, HP Veer, yeah. which is the tiny little little Palm device, WebOS yeah, it's like, device. It's like a Tamagotchi. Remember those? <laughs> yeah. Little tiny LCD screens. That's exactly what it is. That's what it is, yeah. Uh, the one point that you were talking about, uh, the fact that WebOS uses WebKit for its main UI, so it's using web technologies, basically, you know, HTML, JavaScript, CSS. To right, do the, app, the apps are written in JavaScript. Right, and they have a native API too, but in general, it's, it's high level. And it, it gets back to one of the things that I was discussing in the language show about high-level languages developing for, for handheld platforms, and is Apple at a disadvantage because their language is C-based, or is it still an advantage, and so on and so forth. And someone brought this point up in the chat room, uh, I don't, but I don't think it got onto the show, uh, and it was what I was thinking at the same time, which was that WebOS finds itself in a kind of macOS 10 type situation. Like where macOS 10 was in 2001 when it first came out, was that a lot of the design decisions, like uh, particularly Quartz, that, that they had made for the operating system were super duper slow on current hardware. And and they're making a bet that they can sort of get through this slow period and then when they come out the other side, having chosen a higher level API will pay off in the long run because, you know, hardware gets faster and you don't have to really change anything. But if you pick a lower level software API and then the hardware gets faster, it's much harder to go back and change your API to be higher level. It's it's a lot harder to change software code than it is to just have your software run on newer hardware. So it'll be interesting to see if WebOS can make it out of this dark period for itself because the previous Palm phones were just laggy and slow, underpowered for what the UI wanted them to do. Right. Um, maybe and you know it took it took Microsoft ten years to to you know for window resizing to feel fast and you know for them to move more stuff under the GPU and so on and so forth. So I think WebOS has maybe a longer way to go than Quartz because it's not just the drawing part; it's you know the whole the whole shebang. There's a whole big stack of stuff on top of the CPU before you get to your uh, application code. But I think it is possible that if HP continues to invest in WebOS and continues to sell products despite the fact that not many people are buying them, maybe three years from now, the fact that they use WebKit uh, won't be interesting from a performance perspective. That you know, Swiping around will feel super fast on WebOS devices and zooming will feel fine and, you know, you know, then I'll just be quibbling about, well, do I want to write an application with JavaScript and, and HTML and CSS or any sort of thing like that? Or do I want to write in a more traditional API? But it won't be about, oh, because this is on top of WebKit, this app will never be responsive. Uh, and, and they're kind of doing the same thing. Well, 
they hedged a little bit with the native API because Mac OS X, it was like quartz or nothing. Everyone was begging when, when Mac OS X was in development. So where's our direct screen drawing API? I just want to scribble right into the frame buffer, you know? I just want to be able to draw anywhere on the screen with an opaque pixel, uh, you know, really fast because direct drawing is what I need for my application because on, on classic Mac OS, direct drawing was the only way to get really fast performance for any sort of, you know, frequently updating uh, graphics. And Apple held fast. They said, no, there is no direct drawing API. If you right. go full screen, you can go OpenGL, you can do stuff like that. But if you're inside a window, you don't get to scribble all over the frame buffer. We control that. You have to go through the window server and stuff like that. And they held the line. And eventually we came out the other side and it's a non-issue now. Uh, WebKit immediately said, well, we got to have games on our platform. So we have to have some way to uh, have a native API where, you're, where you write in C and C++. Uh, I think that was a necessity, but I think they will stick to, you know, like their calendar application, their mail and stuff like that, all being built on WebKit. And if they're not, WebOS developers come and tell me that I'm wrong. They've already bailed on that and they're they're using the native API. No, I think I think you're right. And I think that is still the way it is because I was reading an article that was talking. Well, I don't know if it was quite an article as a PR piece almost from Palm that was saying, and I'll, I'll Google it to make sure that I'm not misquoting it, but they were basically saying, you know, this is a great platform for geeks and developers. And I think that was one of the reasons that they cited was that it was all, you know, WebKit based. But I'm going to, I'll Google that right now. Yeah, I read that article. It was, it was an interesting take. Like they're, they were staking out a different, a different message. They were saying, hey, it's running Linux and you can get right on there and get a shell. And, you know, can you imagine Apple trying to woo developers by telling them they can get a command line on their iPhones, which is true, but you know, that's not what that's not Apple's message to developers. Their Apple's message to developers is user APIs, makes graphical apps, so sell them in the App Store and make money. Number four, and I will I'm putting this into the uh, the show notes right now. Number four, a lot of it is familiar technology. This the article is entitled Ten Reasons for Geeks to Love HP Web OS. Number four, uh, we use the languages and APIs you already know. Most apps are written in JavaScript. With the presentation layers, HTML and CSS, we provide a framework to make writing apps quicker, blah, blah, blah. But then it says, if you want to use C and C++, our main build tool is GCC. And our main APIs are SDL and OpenGLES, both widely used systems with lots of support material online and in books. Yeah, they mentioned OpenGL in there. That's the the nod to the game developers. Like, yeah. you know, you want to write a game, we understand that. That's the, you know the second most popular use of a uh, right. development platform. But it says that number five, since apps are written in JS, it's easy. They say JS as opposed to JavaScript. They say JS. It's easy to find lots of examples just by poking around on the device. Yes, they're encouraging cargo culting. <laughs> Copy and paste just like you did when you did your first <laughs> web application. Find that guy who has the scrolling marquee and figure out he, how he did it. Paste that code into your... Website. Oh, and here's some follow up from a show that you haven't heard yet because we just recorded it a few minutes ago, and you said you you were you were just you were just tuning in. You might have missed it. Merlin yep. Mann wants to know what editor you use to write. You your know the code. answer to that, don't you? I I I would guess, and he guessed BB Edit. That's what That's I would think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you use Monaco nine or ten point? Uh, nine point. Yeah, I can't believe Gruber is straight, and now he's using ten point. He's getting old. But no, I'm on, it's on Monaco 9 point. I have used BB Edit with Monaco 9 point non-anti-alias text in my entire working career. Every day when I come in to work at every job that I've had, and I've had many of them, I sit down in front of a computer that has BB Edit on it with Monaco 9 point non-anti-alias text and I type stuff. And once I got a terminal on my Mac, that was also my terminal font and continues to be to this day. 
And you have very, very good vision, and you sit incredibly close to your screen like a hulking Skeletor. I well, I have, very, I have horrible vision, but all my vision is bad in distance. But, but yeah, if I take off my glasses, I can't see the screen at all. Uh, you don't get eye strain from that? I, no, I don't. I'm, I'm glad that I do not have any eye strain issues. I never had. Well, you've got enough strain. problems. You've got enough problems. I mean, and BB at least edit, you can still see. Like, I understand why people were into TextMate and, you know, the other kind of. Uh, when, when Mac OS X first came around, BB it looked kind of old because it hadn't yet completely converted to all the native APIs of Mac OS X and it was a carbon app. And they were like, oh, TextMate, look, it looks like Cocoa and it's magic and it's wonderful. Uh, but the little things in TextMate, like, the, the biggest one is the undo, removing a character at a time. I know TextMate users complain about that too. But I. You know, if that even if that was the only thing keeping away from TextMate, that would be enough. That one thing would keep me from ever using TextMate to do anything because I would just shoot myself if that's how undo works. Because the way I work, I'm used to sort of fast forwarding and rewinding with undo and redo. That's a big. That's a big complaint about TextMate. Yeah, and and I and it's not like it sounds like something trivial. That alone is enough to keep me away from the editor. Uh, and in terms of the Emacs VI wars, in case people care, I'm definitely an Emacs guy. I don't like modes. I don't like VI. I only know enough VI to get in, edit a file, and get out. Uh, the only time I find myself willingly using VI is if I'm a machine without Emacs or if Emacs' modes are pissing me off. <laughs> I, I, spent a while, I spent a while customizing Emacs in my undergraduate years, and I didn't go whole hog into like, those people who live inside Emacs. I walked right up to that precipice and then turned back. Uh, so, so one thing you may be missing out on then, having been a BB Edit user and probably the first thing you do when you launch it is going to make sure that the font is nine point Monaco. You're probably missing out on the fact that they now bundle a new version of, I think it's consoleless. Is that the right way to say it? But I think that's what it's called. I know the font. They bundle it's bundled in and they encourage you to use it at a larger size and they encourage you to use it with pixel anti-aliasing turned on. I know. I mean, and it comes with office too. Uh, I've got these fonts on my system. I'm just not using them. Somehow have you tried it? You tried it for a day or two? Have you never know. tried? I don't. It? I don't see why I would switch. Like the only time I even saw it was like I think one one time when I upgraded BB Edit before it had the preference syncing across machines. Like I, I either installed or updated BB Edit on a second machine. and I saw the console list default, and I just immediately changed that. I don't. It shows less information in the same area. I don't know why I would would use it unless I can't see it, unless it's a site problem. And until I have Site problems, I'm not going to be doing that. Maybe you're giving yourself site problems by using such a small phone. I'm not. I have no problems with my eyes. I, I, you know, I wear glasses. I've always worn glasses, and, and my vision has been the same for years. So that's the end of the follow-up, I think. All right, let's do our first uh, sponsor then, and we'll get to the meat of the show. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace.com. We would like to remind you that just because you, like John Syracuse, knows very well how to administer a server, it doesn't mean that you have to. They can do all of this stuff for you. Uh, and even in their entry-level offering, the Rackspace cloud servers, they have a managed service level that lets you focus on the big picture, all the system administration functions of patching and backing up and watching, monitoring, and pinging things. It's all just handled for you. It's like cloning yourself, or actually... I guess it would be like cloning John Syracuse and having him run your server for you. You can learn more about this at Rackspace.com or RackspaceCloud.com, both great places to go. And Dave Weiner actually did a recent uh, little, he did a little bit of a test, a real-life test. He created a Rackspace-hosted clone of a system that was having trouble doing its job on Amazon EC2, 
and he used the cheapest option on Rackspace, which is like 59 bucks. And he, uh, he compared it to what his Amazon EC2 instance for 90 bucks a month was, was doing. And he said the results were shocking. This is from his article. With the same load that pushed EC2 to the limit, the Rackspace server barely got off the baseline. He kept adding more and more. He had us at doing one and a half times what his uh, EC2 instance was doing. So good uh, testimonial right there. Check him out. Rackspace.com. What are we talking about? Toasters? We got three topics, and I think they're both short, so maybe we could fit all three in, but you should pick which one you like best to go first in case it expands. So we've got uh, my complaints about Twitter, my toaster stuff, and a very short iTunes complaint. That's the order right there. You want to do Twitter first? Yeah. All right. So, as always, I will ask you, what do you think I'm going to complain about in Twitter? And I'll give you a hint that it doesn't have to do with the people who use it. (laughs) Um, there's so many things that I could think you could complain about, to be honest. Um, the 140 character limit. See, that's, it's kind of related to that. Uh, I mean, that seems to be the most obvious, the most, uh, basic I do think one. you should have a little bit more characters, but if you, whenever you start talking about the 140 character limit, people will immediately jump on you and pretty much rightly so to say that one of the main reasons Twitter was successful is because they put a really short cap on right. how long the messages are. If it's longer, it's a different thing. Totally different thing. Right. And maybe it still would have been successful, but I, I would say the, the short message length was a huge contributor because that allows you to follow you know, many more people because you're not going to see this seven-paragraph diatribe filling up your Twitter stream uh, like you would if they had unlimited or longer limits or gave people more you know, characters for some fear, all these other schemes that have been tossed around. Uh, but you're, but you're getting close. Uh, the, the thing, the thing that drives me nuts about Twitter, well, it's, it's in the, the family of bad technical decisions, uh, that have longstanding repercussions, uh, and that are, you know, founded in, in bad thinking. File name extensions is one of those, uh, things that I've been harping on for years. And, I thought everyone agreed that file name extensions were bad, but when we switched to Mac OS X, people stopped caring or there was, we backslid to the 70s or whatever. But uh, Twitter has the exact same problem. Um, and the engineering term for it is in-band signaling, where in-band signaling is when you're sending the information you want to send and also control information or metadata or any other sort of information about that information inside the information itself. Like you don't have a separate channel to uh, to annotate the data. So the data in Twitter, as far as most people are concerned, is that 140 characters where you write your stuff in and you get 140 characters to express yourself. And the metadata is uh, has sort of grown organically and expanded over time to be things like who you're replying to, if you're retweeting something, wh- where were you retweeting it from, uh, you know, the date that you did it, the sender, uh, you know uh, what else is in there? The if you have any uh, uh, sim, if you if you want to, for example, link any words to a particular target, you know, if there's a blue underlined word, and you click it, where do you go when that when that uh, when you click on that word? Stuff like that. That would be an example of metadata. Now, Twitter has some metadata that's out of band. The sender is out of band. The date that you sent it is out of band. Uh, the uh, what do you call it? If you retweet something, they implemented that when they did the new RTs. That's all out of band. Uh, where that's metadata attached to your tweet, and they've you know they've got that in a database somewhere or whatever. But there's this whole family of information that's in band. Like when you're replying to someone, you got to do at 
potentially 20 character username. And when you're making a hyperlink, you have to just put the link in and rely on your client software to correctly detect hyperlinks amongst free text, which right. as we all know is a ridiculous, uh, you know, there's no good way to do that because human understanding of what should be a link and the RFC do not agree at all. So you can't correctly implement that. If you did correctly implement it according to the RFC, half of your links would be broken and people will complain about your Twitter client. So it's a horrible situation for client people. And it spawned this whole world of URL shorteners because links are very long and you could easily fill an entire tweet with a single link so they have all these shorteners. So now we have these 70 million you know, uh, link shortener things, any one of which can go out of business at any day, rendering all legacy tweets that contain those URLs to completely inscrutable so we'll have no idea where they link to, <laughs> right? And you know, there's all sorts of potential for for malware and other uh, problems, or you know, even just advertising and uh, bad stuff like that with these URL shorteners. Because once they've got a critical mass of people using them, or for example, once they've got you know millions and billions of tweets with their shortener in them, they they could say, well, when someone clicks on a you know short bitly shortener link from five years ago, we're actually going to send them to a landing page with advertisements on it first, and then send them to their final destination. But for new links, we won't do that, or something like that. All these things came out of their horrible decision to do in-band signaling for all that information. And there's no reason that couldn't have been out of band just like everything else. It's not like there's not a channel for conveying that information uh, you know, in the way that Twitter is used today. You, they, they define an API, make some sort of JSON data structure or whatever, put all the metadata about your thing in there. As for the links, you could mark them up by just, you know, you could use HTML or something like Markdown. There's plenty of ways to say this text should be linked to this URL and out of band, I'm going to tell you what that URL is. Uh, and they would keep the, the the message length is like how much do I want to read? So keep the visible message length to 140 characters. But I don't care if every single word in that tweet is linked to a URL that's 500 characters long, because that doesn't make the tweet longer to read. It just means that I can click on things and go to and go to the destination. Now the reason all this happened is because Twitter began life as an SMS service, in addition to its web API. And the whole idea is that you would text from your phone. And, you know, the SMS character limit was like 160. So they gave you 140 plus 20 characters for the, you know, the person you're replying to or whatever. And that was their limit. And SMS, of course, doesn't have all this extra metadata. It doesn't have an extra control channel for other information. It's just a very, you know, it was a, it was a pre-existing, uh, you know, communications medium. And they had to work within that. Now, I also hate SMS. I also think SMS should be just wiped from the face of the planet because there's nothing SMS done that can't be done better over the internet with a data phone. And you say, well, well, they don't all have data phones and SMS is efficient because it piggybacks on to tell you, cellular voice data using these ancient networks. I don't care. That's all legacy concerns. Yes, SMS had to exist and it was good for when it existed, but we are clearly moving on to some different thing. And that different thing is a data network and the internet and all those things don't have the ridiculous limitations of SMS. So people love texting. They love to communicate with people on their phones with text. I'm not going to take that away from them. In fact, I would say continue to call the application SMS for you know a decade or so to make people feel comfortable. But when I tap that little SMS icon, do something that has nothing to do with SMS, so I'm not limited by the, the you know SMS's uh, particular uh, you know foibles. And that's going to take a long time in the U.S. because it's tied up to the carrier networks, and the carrier networks don't change quickly, and we're still barely getting on 3G, let alone LTE and the real 4G and so on and so forth. So that'll be a long time in coming. But I would say. It's perfectly valid for Twitter now to ditch the SMS thing and to say, we, Twitter, are a forward-looking company, hmm. and we are only going to be four people using data cell phones or the internet. Now, Twitter as a company knows better than I do what their SMS usage rate is, like what, what it was in the beginning, like graph that out, you know, what percentage of people who use Twitter use the, the SMS functionality, right? 
and they could even say, well, you know, we can we could say that if you send it through SMS, we strip out all of the metadata and it might look, you know, it might not work that well. Because if you're doing it in an SMS, like if you don't have clickable links or something like that, if you're using an SMS client, depending on your client, are you going to, you know, does it understand Twitter messages and are you going to have anything you could tap on anyway? If you have a data phone that can actually launch a link that you tap with your thumb into a web browser, then just use the data API. Um, someone in the chat room is pointing out that carriers make obscene amounts of money from SMS. Yes, that's another reason it'll take forever to come. That's another reason I hate it. Yeah. Pay, pay a fee per message. Like these messages are gold. I could send, you know, we could send two gigabytes of data, but if you send 160 characters, that'll be 10 cents, please. Yeah, Let it makes know. absolutely no sense. But there, I have so many times wished, like today when we were trying to schedule the show because I was running late, we had to sign some papers. I'm like, man, I wish I could just text him. Why don't you just text John? Yeah, that's not good. I mean, the thing is, if I had a, a data Instead phone... I had to go I, in an email, launch the email, uh, well, send you email, I am. John well, I said it, some, Someone points out in, in the, the uh, chat room, how do you get from the crappy implementation to the proper one? The same way you always do. There, there's a transition, and depending on what's most advantageous for your company, you can be the kind of guy who tries to make a clean break, which Apple's done a few times, like you know, dropping the floppy disks and going USB only, and there can be an advantage to that. Or you can do a slow transition where, like I said, you know, depending on where you are in the network, the SMS button on your phone pops up either a real SMS application or an application that looks like an SMS application but is actually doing you know, Jabber over some central server somewhere or whatever. And yeah, there's not much incentive for the... It, Actually, there are perverse incentives. There might be incentives as the networks change to be uh, the kind of networks that, that don't include a free slot for SMS to piggyback on voice data, like as they change to pure data or you know whatever the 4G stuff is. They may say that it's advantageous for if you're on the 4G network to have the SMS app look and behave just like an SMS thing and still charge 10 cents per message or whatever it is, but have it actually go over the internet using some like Verizon Central Jabber server. Because the people using the phones don't care where it goes, right? And you can even keep this 160-character limit, you know, just, just to make it look and feel exactly as crappy as it always did and keep charging $0.10, cents, but under the covers, use packet switch networking like, you know, modern humans do. Uh, and use the internet to get your, your bits around. Uh, but regardless, I think Twitter is probably in a position to drop SMS at this point. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm vastly overestimating the, the internet savviness of Twitter's users, but... They would have to check for themselves of like what percentage of our people rely on SMS. And if we, if we did stuff that didn't work in SMS, would they be angry? Or would they be happy that they were now getting a superior experience off of SMS? And, and the things this will let you do is reply to people with long Twitter handles without wasting characters on them, right? Make not, you know, not have to use link shorteners. Link shorteners are a plague on the internet. They should just be completely removed, but we're forced to use them. And why, why did the link shorteners suddenly come out of nowhere? We had tiny URL for, for you know, years before this, but they were only used like if you didn't want to put big URL in an email or something. But now HTML email is ubiquitous. Uh, we have a method for making hyperlinks out of text that puts a little underline in them and it makes it blue. We've had that for a pretty long time now. It works really <laughs> well. Let's just use that. So then the linking thing goes away completely, you know, and the metadata about who you're replying to and stuff. Like, why does retweet metadata go out of, out of uh, band, but uh, the replying has to stay in? Well, retweet has to go out of band because if you're retweeting a 140-character thing, you don't have any room to, for attribution, so that's got to go out of band. But if you're replying, that means you're composing a new message, and screw you, you just get your characters chopped off because you've got to put that in-band signaling in there. And that also means that you can't begin a, a tweet with an at thing, like, you know, at Dan Benjamin says, blah, 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 right? Because that looks like now it's a reply and other people won't see it in your stream. In-band signaling is almost always a bad decision, a bad long-term decision. Short-term, sometimes you have to do it because of limitations, but 
long term, you'll pay for it. And you'll pay for it long term because those legacy constraints, first of all, the people who are sort of conformists, like latch onto them and say, no, that's the way it has to be because that's just the way I grew up with it, Dagnabbit, and we can never change it, right? And once you get a million clients and people who are interested in uh, are, are used to using it in that manner, they say, well, I like having the at and username of the thing. If it was metadata, then the clients would have to rewrite to, to have some place to display who I'm replying to, and that would be a problem, and you can't have all those people changing at the same time. And what about the SMS people? You know, What about the people who want to put their tweets on the leg of a pigeon with a p- little piece of paper and send it out the window? So <laughs> you can't, you know, it, it becomes ridiculous. Uh, and finally, extensions I thought we were getting away from. I thought with the resurgence of Apple, we would, you know, get away from th- that type of thing. But no, it came back with the next people. And so now we're, we call this a dark age of file name extensions. Now we're in a dark age of file name extensions. Uh, I think I could do a whole other show on that. But uh, but that's that's my that's my Twitter rant. And it's annoyed me about Twitter from day one. Because on the first day, I could see that, you know, I, why am I limited to 160? Because of SMS? No, don't do anything you know, SMS, you could even see back in 2006 is on its way out. Like data networks are the future. Don't do anything just for SMS. You're crippling your core product based on some legacy technology that people won't even remember in a couple of decades. And you'll say, mommy, why are tweets 160 <laughs> characters? Well, you can give them the business story that says, well, they're that short because if they were longer, Twitter would be more annoying. But then they say, mommy, why do I have to at reply to this long username and take up these characters? I say, well, it's because someone made a very bad engineering decision a long time ago and now we're all paying for it. So that's Twitter. And I'm also, this is another one of those topics where I'm amazed that, uh, that no one else seems to care about it. They're like, it just is what it is. People will accept any crap and not, you know, it's like, that's just the way Twitter is and it's perfectly fine. And some people just wrap around to the other side and say, not only is it fine, I like it better that way. In fact, that's the best way it could possibly be. And the other way is worse. <laughs> how much do you use Twitter these days? See how much I use it. Well, I don't know. You, you're, you're one of those people who follows like 9,000 people. No, so no, I, I don't follow that many people. And I've actually cut way back like i've unfollowed everybody that i feel i could unfollow without upsetting them how many people do you follow now i don't know i would have to look 100 that's too many whatever it is it's still too many it's not the people it's the volume obviously but the people is a good first see a lot of the people that i follow only tweet once or twice a day so it's not that bad And, and what i've actually done is i've i've created lists and there are people who i put on the lists but if I don't follow some people, they want and they like. There's a lot of people who use Twitter as an extended IM, and they'll direct message yeah, you instead of doing good. an email. That's not good. So if I unfollow them, then the you know the one time they'll want to direct message me, they'll be like, "Dude, when did you unfollow me? I thought we were friends." You are following 300, which I would say is probably too much. That's too much. I'm trying to come. Yeah. I'm trying to get, get back down. I was on. trying to keep it under 100 for a long time, but I recently went over. I'm at 102. Uh, but it's not really that many because I follow a lot of accounts. So like you said, I post like one thing a month or something, or you know, or I follow people who haven't posted anything yet, but I'm hoping they will or something like that. Uh, but no, I I use Twitter. Uh, you know, I, I I read every single one of the people that I follow. So I don't I read every single tweet that's in my stream. I don't have lists or anything like that, but I follow 102 people and I read every single tweet that every single one of them uh, puts up. So so. Uh, that means you're potentially reading. I mean, you. So how do you how do you know you do that? Like, you'll go to your Twitter stream because I have clients that are synchronized with each other, and I can you know I don't use the website. I only use Twitter clients. So and, you'll use uh, a client. The client will show you where you were, and then part of your routine at some point in the day will be to go and say what what have people written. See, I used to do it that way, and at some point, 
And I mean, I don't even have a high volume. Like if, if I go a whole day without reading Twitter, I can, you know, it's, it's like, you can catch up 200 and something tweets and it's not that long. You can can skim it. If I was, if I missed an entire, if I missed two days in a row, I probably wouldn't be able to catch up on that. But really I, I I don't have a problem. Even on my vacation, I have some sort of data device where I could uh, read Twitter. I guess occasionally I've missed a, a day here or there where I haven't read everything that's been uh, put in, and I'm sure I skim at certain points too. Uh, yeah, mostly, the chat room wants to know what client or clients you use. But Twitterific. I've always been a Twitterific user. I started using it when it first came out. Uh, the, I started using the Mac version when it first came out, and then as soon as it was available for the phone, I used that or my iPod. I've tried almost every other Twitter client uh, that's been available. Uh, there's some ones that came close. Like I, I actually like the official Twitter client on the iPad. Uh, but I still end up using Twitter, mostly because I don't use the iPad that much. Uh, when I get my own iPad instead of my wife's, maybe I will change my mind about the iPad client. But on the desktop, I still use Twitterific. Um, and on the phone, that's or on the iPad. That's what I use. And mostly, the reason I mostly use it is because it has the unified timeline. So if you are someone like me who wants to read everything, yeah, I'm going to read it from bottom to top, right? I don't want to have to switch to the replies tab, the direct right, messages right. tab. You want to have see it all in, all in one place. Right. A unified timeline. Because otherwise, switching is annoying, first of all. And second of all, then it's hard for me to envision where those things came time-wise within the stream. Like, is this reply and this direct message, which one came first, which one came second? I don't repair, compare the dates or anything like that. I want to see it visually. Here is the time sequence of events that happened, and I'll read from bottom to top. That's Twitter. You, 448. You got, you got to, how much time do you got? I got maybe, you know, 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. All right, let's, let's do our second sponsor. It's Shopify.com. We love, we love these guys. I used them for the 5x5 store, the HiveLogic store. Before that, uh, I, know, I know a ton of web designers and developers that use them, and I'll tell you why. Because they're the best way to sell anything online, period. It has a super clean design that makes it easy to set up your store. Every Shopify store comes with a ton of beautiful themes to choose from. And if you want to pay a couple bucks, you can get even more amazing themes, literally $2 or $4 from famous designers. But if you're a designer yourself, you can customize it any way you want. It just uses HTML and CSS, and you have full control over the templates. Uh, it's, it's totally secure. You don't have to worry about uh, secure access. They handle all of that for you. And there's a 30-day free trial. Well, 30 days. That's probably enough time to know if you're going to like it. But for us, for you guys, if you use the code 5 by 5 you will get three months for free. So go check it out. Shopify.com. A shop in minutes. A business for life. Use that code. 5 by 5 I just took a look at your Twitter page. You have made more than twice as many tweets as me. And you probably joined around the same time as I did. When did you sign up? Uh, the f- well, I have two accounts. I have an old account that I don't use very much, which is the HiveLogic account. And that, that I joined when there like, was really no website, when it was all SMS in, I don't know, 1992 or whatever year that was. And, and then I have the 2006. Dan, yeah. And then I have the Dan Benjamin one that, that I use, which I think I made a year later. Uh, but I respond to a lot of people that I don't actually know like people who will say hey dude what's up with daily edition when's it coming out or there's a clicking yeah, that's what i'm saying you're you're you are using it more than i am i use it a lot i use it a lot lying to everybody you know you see i i can't logic one says it has 40 tweets on it yeah because i i deleted a lot of old ones yeah when All i right, reboot well, so i really use that one and the dan benjamin one you think is like 2006 2007 ish uh, maybe 2007 
Yeah, so maybe it's a little bit later than me. But yeah, you're tweeting much more than I am. You're following more people and you're tweeting more than I am. That's because I care. Yeah, I don't. So that's the thing. Like, I don't even get that many, you know, replies or anything like that because I can actually read all of my replies, but I don't feel like I need to reply to every one of my replies. Like, it's not enough, you know, I don't, I don't feel any, as with email, I feel no obligation to reply to people who tweet things to me. Because it's not enough time in the day to reply to every single person. It's not, it's not like a phone call where the phone rings and you must be commanded to pick it up. Well, if you get, if someone, you know, mentions you in a tweet, you must be commanded and ask a question, you must reply. That's, that's giving, that's going to a Merlin show. It's giving other people ownership over your time. Mm, you're very that. protective of your time. That's not how, you very know. Very protective. And Nothing wrong just, with that. I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing. I'm just making an observation. And and if if it ever does ramp up, like in the few brief periods of time that you know, like after I post something that people are interested in, they're replying or whatever, I'll be more actively engaged in replying and stuff like that. But on a day to day basis, you get a random reply that like asks your opinion about something. If I have time at that moment, I'll reply. And if yeah. I don't, I won't, and I'll never think about it again. Yeah. Forget you. No, it's not that. It's just I mean, because I, I got better I, things thing to do than I, reply to people who when, like me. You just don't have enough time in the day to reply to every single person. The same thing with me. I reply to people who are, you know, have lots of followers and they sometimes they reply to my things and but mostly they don't. You know, there's just not enough time in the day to respond to every person who wants to talk to you on Twitter. And, you know, celebrities forget it. They have no chance. Like, it's just like a lottery. You know, if you reply to one of them. If first of all, it's a lottery whether they see it in the eighteen thousand replies that they just got in the last three seconds, and then second, it's a lottery over whether they they think it's clever enough to, to laugh at, it. and third, if they're going to reply to it, you know. So as you as you get more famous, it becomes less and less possible to reply to people. I think I do a pretty good job of replying given the number of people I have, but at a certain point, you know, it just becomes. Well, impossible. I think I think you, you you're you're wise to encapsulate your time the way you do. You seem to be trying to keep up with it, though. That's why I, I, very, I absolutely do. Things. It's like he feels like he needs to reply to every person because if he's not, you know, then it's like like it's your customer service job that, you, you know, it's your job to tell them about the shows if they have any kind of question rather than being like, look, why doesn't the person just type five by five into Google search box and find the website and put all their answers for themselves? You know? be, I, I believe that if somebody takes the time to to reach out and ask a question and it's, and I happen to be looking and it's something I can answer and, the, and, and I understand it. I don't have to research anything. It's just easy enough to answer. I will, I will try to answer it. I, I'm way better with Twitter than email. I mean, email, I get quite a lot of email and I don't, I don't reply to most of it. I read it, but I have a, I see the, the, the thing is I think people, people today with Twitter are where they are a few years ago with email in that like today, especially with the contact form that we have on five by five, if you send an email, I try to make it as obvious as possible that there's a likelihood that you will not get a response. I mean, I, I try to put that in the outgoing message. I try to make it clear that, that if you're writing it, it, this may be a one way thing that we'll see it, we'll read it, but we may not reply. Whereas with Twitter. And I think that's not too weird today for a, Something like this. I don't think that's weird. But to to not reply on Twitter, it comes across, especially if it's a direct, you know, not a direct message, but it's an at reply. Like, people really want to respond, so I try to do that. Maybe I'm crazy. At replies are different because I treat them like I am. And if I, someone at replies, not at replies, uh, direct messages are different. Uh, if someone direct messages me, it means I follow them. So presumably I, I've already decided that they have some sort of value. Right, so not I, a I DM, but an at reply. Yeah. I don't think I've ever not responded to a DM. 
uh, even if it's just responding by email. Or I'm going to have to test. I'm going to have to test that. Now, are you one of those people? Except for who, you, because you, like my mother, communicate in short bursts of incomprehensible English that have no obvious response <laughs> or call to action. <laughs> the, well, I, I think I'd love your mom. She sounds like a wonderful woman. Yeah. So the box is on the screen again. In power text. <laughs> is that is that a real one? It's like, well, so it, is this a call to action? <laughs> Should I now get on a plane and fly out? Is what kind of box is this? Is it life threatening? Should I call you on the phone? And then and she'll complain that I, you know, why don't you respond to my emails? Like, I, there's not, I don't know what I could possibly say. And trying to discover what it is I should say would be a seven ex- email exchange. If we could just wait till we talk on the phone, and it will be high bandwidth. And I'll say, when you sent that terse email, what the heck did you mean? Let's talk about it now. But otherwise, it's like, it's like, it's like super poke on Facebook. It's like jabbing someone to get their attention, but then putting the entire onus on them to figure out what it is that you want and what they're supposed to do. So now it's up to you to reply and say, what needs do you have? Please tell me about your concerns and explain to me how I can help you. Tell me more about that. Okay, now I will help you. No. Well, no, nobody, <laughs> nobody has ever suspected, I think, that you were uh, focused on customer service. Yeah, well, I mean, if if you do, if you have a business account, like if I had a business account, or if I was selling software or something, and I had like you know the Icon Factory account or you know Red Sweater Software account or something, obviously that's a different type of thing, and that's that's a job. Well, way way more people follow way more people follow my account than follow the five by five account, and they ask. Some people are real smart, and they'll they'll ask both. Like if it's a five by five question, they'll they'll put the five by five and me in there, and I love that. That is that 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 separates. I love that. businesses from cults of personality. So obviously Gruber uh, ha- and you have more of a cult of personality versus something like Icon Factory, which has several personalities, all of whom have big followers. But yeah. if anyone's interested in support for their products, they're going to Icon Factory. Whereas if you have like a singular, a singular voice, you know what I mean? Like yeah. five by five is Dan Benjamin. Daring Fireball is John Gruber. The individual people that people can relate to that better than they can relate to the faceless entity. That is five by five or daring fireball, right? Um, but Gruber does a good job of splitting up because the daring fireball account has the. It's just you know here's the stream of things that are posted. So if you it's like subscribing to RSS through Twitter, uh, whereas I guess you do that with five by five. You have the auto tweets of when shows start and stop. But if people have questions, they're like, well, why don't I just talk to the guy? You know, the guy. Right. Yeah. Very very yeah. true. Very true. And that's that's exactly the way we do it. The CMS will tweet out when we go live. It'll tweet out when a new show is posted. Uh, whenever we do that. But we also log in, and when you know people ask us things, we do it there. But I don't mind. Yeah. I'm not once complaining. Once you start replying to people, once you start replying to people about questions about the show, like, oh, is the, is the show delayed this week? When is it coming? Once you start replying to that on the at Dan Benjamin, then that's just you know. Yeah, I've set a precedent. It's too late Plus, for me you, now. You want followers in your personal account anyway, as a prestige thing, so you shouldn't complain too much. I'm, I'm not complaining at all. You have more followers than I do. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It is hard to believe. Toasters. You want to try to- Let's try toasters. Then we'll be done. Yeah. Then we'll wrap it up. All right. I can try to fit toasters in. I, Marco trying to steal my toaster thunder in his show. Like, I, I can't have one topic to myself. People, other people got to talk about toasters. Uh, I think he was just so excited. And the fact that you brought it up and didn't ever really explain the toaster, you didn't really yeah. say. So, yeah, all right. I'll try to get through toasters. So, first of all, this is about toaster ovens, not about slot toasters. I'm not a slot toaster person. I don't know if slot toasters are in such a dire situation as toaster ovens are. Uh, but this is not about that. So if you're interested in slot toasters, find, find a dedicated slot toaster podcast. Uh, so for toaster ovens, 
I, I don't have lots of demands of toaster ovens. Like, and for most of my life, this was something I didn't think about. My parents had a toaster oven. It was like a little Black & Decker thing. I'm assuming it cost like 20 or $30 in the 70s or 80s or 90s or whatever they buy it, right? And uh, we, all I really want is you can put some bread in there, which is like, you know, just basic toast. And it toasts the bread and gives it back to you in some reasonable amount of time. And for most of my life, that was true. And now, as an adult, when I, when I got my own, you know, my first apartment and my own house and stuff like that, I'm going to buy my own appliance. I'm going to go to a store and buy a toaster. The very first toaster I bought right after I was married, uh, I guess this was in, in 97, 98, something like that. It was perfectly fine. But, like, you know, if you buy a cheap toaster for 20 or 30 bucks, eventually they, you know, get old and disgusting looking. And, and I don't think this stopped working, but at a certain point, they're just kind of grimy and you want to get rid of them. Uh, so then I went to replace that toaster with another toaster. And I said, well, here are my requirements. Is a toaster oven. I want it to fit four slices of sandwich bread, just regular size sandwich bread, so it's a little bit bigger than the smaller toaster I was replacing it because the smaller toaster could fit four slices, but they were kind of squished. So I figure toasters seem to be getting bigger these days, so I'll try to find one that can fit four uh, pieces in there. And I picked one out of the store. It looked fine. I think it was actually Black & Decker or something. And when I brought it home, I realized that they had toasters had somehow changed. Some, some point during 98, 99, 2000, 2001, Toasters had got had gone through some kind of revolution yes. in a bad way. They're they're much bigger. They have convection built in. I, know. I found one that was a reasonable size, but you know, first thing was the interface. I was used to a dial for for brownness, and it would show like light toast, dark toast, and you would turn that dial to whatever you wanted, and then a lever. You push the lever down, and you wait, and when the toast is done, the lever pops up and it goes ding, and then you know your toast is done. Right. And, and, and it has a big a big glass screen in the front, so you can look you can look right through the little window and see exactly and what's another, going on. Another dial for temperature, like when you want to do the baking thing, you know, where like temperature of you know two fifty, three fifty four right, for 50, making 50, your baked for the potato oven, for the oven portion, right? Yeah. And I never thought about this interface because it's like you know, well, whatever. It's a it's a push down thing, a, a, a dial for toast brownness, and then a temperature thing. But everybody seemingly overnight decided that this was not a good idea, and they switched to for toasting. Instead of having a lever that you push down, they either switch to buttons or dials, both of which are horrible, especially the dial, because they would have you turn the dial to, you know, the dial would go to like, you know, all the way, turning the dial all the way around would be super dark and turning it halfway would be a little bit. And when you let go of the dial, then the dial would begin to slowly turn back to the initial position, usually going tick, 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 like a timer, you know, like the old style kitchen timer where you twist the little knob and, and it turns, right? Now, the first problem with that is when you got a toaster, you figured out, like, this piece of bread that I buy, when I put the dial on this amount of brownness, it makes perfectly it makes toast perfect every time. And once you dial that in, you never touch the toast brownness dial again. You just press the little lever now. So, you, you know, open up the toaster, throw a piece of bread in there, press the lever now. There's no thinking about it. Whereas the, these new toasters, every time you want to make a piece of toast, you have to turn the dial and remember, oh, I think this was the part where it came out the right amount of doneness for me, or maybe I overshot it a little bit, or I'm in a hurry. I put, you know, if you overshoot, then by the time it dings, your stuff is, is you know, black. Or if you put it too low, you go in there and you open the toaster and pull out your bread and it's not even toasted yet. So this was a big, big step backwards in toaster design. And I have no idea why they did it. I, is the technology for levers lost in some sort of cataclysm and the guy who knew how to make the lever is gone and they had to use dials and buttons? I don't know. <laughs> so, the interface, that's, that's the first problem. The second problem Oh, I, and one more thing on the dial. That ticking noise, it's no good. I don't need that in the morning. It's like yeah, a ticking You don't want that. You don't I want to press the dial down. It's silent, and then it goes ding when it's done. That's it. No tick, tick, tick. I actually returned toaster that I got for Christmas because I was complaining about toasters. Someone got me a new toaster. I returned it because of the ticking dial. I just cannot 
No ticking. It's another noise phobia issue thing, I guess. But I don't want that in the morning. I don't want ticking toasters. All right, so the second problem is that we also seem to have lost the ability to make a large amount of heat in a short amount of time. Now, I remember when we bought our first toaster, I saw like in the periphery of the more expensive toasters that they were employing some sort of booster device like a halogen element or some other additional element on top of the regular heating elements they had in there to make it heat up really, really fast. And I'm like, boy, this is great. Maybe by the time I buy my next toaster, this technology will have advanced into the mainstream of $35 Walmart toasters or whatever, you know, where everything heats up really fast. But what happened instead was that all toasters now take a year and a day to heat up. You cannot buy a fast toaster seemingly at any price. And I guess some of it has to do with the size increasing. But I've bought small toasters too. You know, you turn that stupid dial and you realize like it's going to be 15 minutes until these two slices of bread get toasted. What is this toaster doing? You look in there, the elements aren't even glowing. You know, you just want to give it more power, Scotty. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's not the way stuff should go. When I, was, when I was a kid, it should have seemed like toast took longer to come out. Now that I'm an adult and more patient and my life is slipping away from me like grains of sand, that toast should be done instantly. Instead, I find myself going back into the kitchen, looking at the stupid thing, going, you're still not toasted? Come on, heat up. Now I preheat the toaster. As soon as I come into the kitchen, I know I'm going to have toast, immediately turn the toaster on. Get the bread, get the orange juice, get everything else. Now the toaster is preheated enough that when I put the piece of bread in there, it's in there for an acceptable amount of time that I don't feel like killing myself when you know I'm sitting there waiting for my toast. <laughs> All right. Now the final problem is its job is to make the bread hot and toasted on both sides. And every toaster I've gotten for it's like four or five toasters and, and, and you know, the period since uh, 97, 98, 99 has not toasted the bread evenly. They toasted too much on one side. They toasted too much in the back, toasted too much in the front. This, this technology must exist to toast bread evenly for my entire childhood. You put a piece of bread in the toaster, you push the handle down, it dings, you get a piece of bread that was toasted on both sides evenly. And now you cannot buy a toaster that does this. I cannot handle it. And, you know, so the, then I start shopping in like, like Marco is, you know, the high-end toasters. Like, do I want to pay $180 for a toaster? Well, will I feel worse if I buy a $180 toaster that doesn't toast bread evenly on both sides? I think I probably will. So I keep buying these $40, $50, you know, $60 max toasters and giving them a try and they all stink. Mm-hmm. I got the perfect toaster now. Insulation was bad when I was a kid as well. Uh, but these days I feel like you should be able to have a toaster that does not melt everything around it. You know, just like a thermos type material. I just want some form of insulation. Obviously the toaster is going to get hot a little bit, but these things bleed so much heat that they can end up melting their own power cord in the, in the back of the toaster when it's pushed up against the, the wall on the countertop. And that's, that's a dangerous situation where you have electricity going through a wire that's now the mel- the rubber has melted off of it and the metal is contacting the metal back of the toaster. I have my cord wrapped in tinfoil behind there to try to protect it against this heat. You know, and, and I also think that a lot of that heat that's, that's bleeding out of the toaster through the sidewalls is the heat that's not going to toast my bread that's taking forever to toast. I've got a great toaster right here. It's amazing. Does all, it does all the right things. Is it a slot toaster or an oven? It's an oven. You should time it and see how long it takes from a cold start to put a piece of white bread in there, which I know you don't eat anymore, but go find one. And, you know... Press the lever for toast. I know it probably doesn't have a lever. Turn the dial to toast the, the correct amount and then time it and see how long it takes. How long would you like it to take? I, I was thinking about timing my own to see what I find unacceptable. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know in, in absolute time. I just know what too long feels like. And every toaster I've gotten for years has felt too long. So what, what is too long? 
I don't know. I have to time my toaster. Maybe that'll be a follow up in another show. I'll yeah. say I time my toaster and saw how long it would take. But but seriously, it Man, shouldn't I be love like the you're toaster. And and like I said, mine doesn't matter how long it takes. It toasts one side way more than the other. And the side that it toasts is the bottom. So to tell if my toast is on, I got to bend down and look up on an angle from like the floor of the kitchen to see the bottom of the toast. Uh, you know, the dark bottom of the toast to see if it's actually done. Because if I wait for the top to be done, the bottom will be burned. Now, this one is perfect. This one has none of those problems. This see, is, like is it the 180 toast. model like Marco's? It, it was, it was, I don't think it was that expensive because it doesn't have, does not have convection, which I, I don't want convection. Yeah, in my I don't toast. want any of that. I don't want, I don't want convection. I can't have one that has the big bulge in the back so you can put a pizza nope, in there. this doesn't anyone, have that. This doesn't have that. Anyone who's cooking pizza in a toaster, by the way, you're going to Italian hell. Don't do that. Or Italian, as you say. That's what you say. The, the yeah. this does not have that. It doesn't have the big bulge for for a pizza. It does it does a great job. It ha, it has dials and buttons as opposed to like the little push button digital LED type stuff. Can you dial in the brownness and then never have to change it because you figured yep. out this is the correct brownness? Yep, yep, yep. And you can also dial in a time instead if you want. So my wife picked this thing out. She's a pro. Because that's what I want. I want to be able to open the thing, throw a piece of bread in there, press one button, dings, come back, I get a piece of toast out, and that should be a short period of you time. Can do I don't feel that. like I'm asking for too much. You're not. You know? You're not. And, and, and I don't want to know what happened to toasters. What I think maybe happened is that there was one generic model of toaster for a long time. Yeah, like, like it was like a little Black, Black & Decker, yeah. At the market cornered, and then... In an explosion of new toasters from new vendors, like that looked different, or they had to differentiate themselves. So it was like now that the world of toasters diversified, and they were being made by new companies and in, in you know foreign countries and and all sorts of you know different colors and styles and digital and not and and they sold new units through diversification of appearance, like through fashion basically and through differentiation on on uh, features and stuff. But the quality of those toasters were all much worse than that one Black & Decker model that it had like a decade of development into it and it had settled down into, you know, doing the basics really well. And the sad thing is even Black & Decker doesn't make that basic Black & Decker model anymore. Like they, they do still make like a $20 toaster, but I think it has dials at this point and it might have a curved front. Uh, the, the technology of toasters hasn't advanced. Like I had expected a future toaster to have like guards on all the elements so food drips down on them it doesn't burn to the elements but those guards shouldn't stop the heat from coming and it should have a booster element to get really hot really fast and it should be nice evenly you know they didn't get better over time they they got worse and just more diverse worse and more diverse you should put in the show notes your model of toaster and if you still have marco's model of toaster put that in the show notes too i can put my model of toaster and is it some I don't think that I have Marco's, but he, he may get it to us. And if he does, we'll, we'll put it in there. I'll find mine and put it in there. It's a great toaster, though. Whew. Best thing ever. Love Look, it. If I, if I come out of this podcast with a better toaster, I will consider it a, a rousing success. <laughs> maybe, maybe we need to have a contest. People should start sending you toasters. Set up like a UPS store box or something. and we'll The give problem it out with toasters is that everyone has different needs. Like for example, if you want a slot toaster, then you're not going to be able to help me. And if you want, if you want something that's big enough to fit a pizza in there, even if you don't do pizza, because you know, that would be a sin, uh, then you like that big lump. And if you want convection, because you cook, actually cook, you know, things in there and want the convection thing, you know, I don't want any of those features. I have very specific needs and they are not met by existing products. All right. The chat room came up with Marco's toaster and I added it. Look at that. They're on top of things. Yeah. yeah, I looked at his. He he was complaining about his interface too. 
Uh, and I look at it, I can see how you could be complaining about the interface. Oh, mine's just, nothing like that. I wouldn't. We we looked at that one in the store or saw it, and I said, "Ah, oh, that would never do." And we well, we got a great toaster here. I have to go look. See, I don't look. I don't know what we have. Just like I don't know what kind of TV I have. It just it turns on. It works. Looks good. We have a toaster. It's amazing. Don't know how it got here. I you might just it. have low standards. No, no, I don't. I have very high standards, but I just don't. Once I have it, I don't. I don't need to worry about it anymore. Well, you wouldn't need to worry about it as long as it. Like, if every time you put a piece of toast in there and you toasted it, it came out done on one side and raw on the other. Well, then I would know exactly what kind I had, and I'd be looking for a new one. But now that I have the perfect one, right, I don't so. need to sweat the details. Like, I don't know. It's a toaster. I knew when I bought it what it was, and I could have at the time I could have told you all about the toasters and the models and the prices and. Then I got it, and I said, well, now I have that, and I put it out of my mind. Focus on other things. It's going to last forever. Well, if it doesn't, then I'll look at the model number. I'll buy a new one. All right. But in between now and then, whenever that is, I don't need to pay any attention to it. And that's how I simplify my life. I don't carry around stuff with me that I I don't need. Put it down. Pick up something new. But I'll put it in the show. I'll find it. I think it, yeah, I think it might be like I don't know, maybe it is a Cuisinart or something. But it's a girl, it's a great toaster. It's got blue, blue LED, not LED. It's not a light. It's like got LCD, I should say. All right, well, so this is going to be a fancy, expensive toaster. No, it's not that See much. It wasn't that much. I mean, it's more. It's more than you want to spend. But it, oh, no, I, I'll spend it if I have. If I have like, you can't. I'll, try I'll buy the, the store, toaster you know? for you if you don't like. It's that good. If I had some guarantee that it would work correctly but well i i will run it through a series of tests i may not have time to perform all the tests before uh before i get to austin but once i'm in austin i will gladly you can you can you know ask me about what you can write down a list of tests and i'll put it through its paces and i'll you know i'll go out and buy some i assume you have the wonder bread i'll go buy some wonder bread and i'll put that in there for you not eat wonder bread no one no one should eat wonder bread uh, my understanding like, is like, Wonder Bread with a little bit of ketchup and some cheese is is, uh, is the kind of pizza you make. That's pizza for you. That's pizza for some people. Yeah. In Florida, I bet that's what pizza's like. Oh, that's gourmet here. That's how, that's how I envision it. And if you press it really flat first, then it's that's real bad, and you got flat bread. You're in you're in really good shape. And it's like you can open a restaurant doing that. Florida, that's a high standards, high class, big shot stuff. All right, we should wrap this up. Well, we will definitely be doing our show next week on time, on the right day. You think so? Yeah, I'll be all I'll be all situated by then, no problem. If I'm not, right. I, if I'm not, I got bigger problems. But by Friday next week, yeah, yeah, we should be perfect. And by then, we should be off these silly topics. Yeah, we'll have a, maybe we'll come up with a real because I heard that there was supposed to be some big Apple announcement over the weekend because it's 10 year anniversary of the, the Apple, Apple store, retail store retail stuff. Store. We won't talk about that. Though. No. You'll, you'll you'll get that out of your system with Gruber and Marco. If it's important, what if what if they have something really exciting that appeals to your discriminating tastes? We'll see. We'll see. You're we could have talked about the the Lodsys patents here, but I think you got that out of your system. Uh, yeah, I don't, I can't I can't talk about that again. It's not that so I don't want to. I don't even give it any more attention. It's stupid. It, it, that's what, when I'm at the end of the week. See, I miss the chance to talk about all these things that break early in the week. I guess if something breaks late in the week, I'll, what, do you want to? Do you want to do a show earlier in the week? You want to do a Tuesday? No, one? Friday is the best day for me. But I'm just saying, like, it depends on when news comes out. If news happens to come out, and this was a compressed week too, with yeah, very schedule moving up. So everybody got a crack at the the Lodges thing before I did, but that's okay. All right, you sound a little bitter. I would have liked to talk. Maybe I'll add that to, to a list as another minor topic, uh, software patents. 
Maybe I would. I would like to hear your take on software patents. Truly, yeah, that'll, that'll be short. That'll be like a filler for a couple of weeks from now or something. All right. Well, we'll uh, put it on the back back burner, as you say. Yep. And uh, you can you can. We were talking about Twitter, but you can follow John on Twitter, and you should you should follow John on Twitter just just to you know send him lots of tweets and and direct and at messages and see. Well, stop following Dan and then follow me until I have more followers than him. That's the goal. That's your goal now. Or, well, or they could just people need a goal to work towards. So I think if you need a goal to work towards, switch your following from Dan to me until I have more than him, and then then we will have succeeded. Well, I only reply to people who when they ask me questions if they uh, if they follow me. If they if they're asking me a question, they don't follow me. That I may I may pull a John Syracuse on them. I would actually think if all of my followers followed you, I actually suspect that there's relatively small overlap. So I, I think if, if you're not following John Syracuse, you don't have to unfollow me. Just follow him, and then that could double his follower count right there. Cause it's, I, not, I, it's not enough for me to succeed. You must also fail. Oh, I see. That's how it works. Mm. You want this show to go on for a long time, don't you? <laughs> so uh, that's it. So you can go to 5x5.tv, and you can... Uh, Hear all the different shows that we do. This is a compressed week, as John mentioned. I don't know if we'll make people... If you're listening to this and it's not Friday, we didn't wait till Friday to release it. Uh, but we'll be back on a more or less regular schedule in about a week as we move the entire studio and my whole family to Austin, Texas. And John is not going anywhere, but you can follow him on Twitter at Syracusa. No Z. S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And... Uh, 5 by 5 place to go rate the show on iTunes if you haven't. It really does help us out a lot. And go check out Shopify.com and Rackspace.com. Uh, we'll see you all again next week. Have a good one, John. <laughs>